Welcome to the Highland Church Podcast. This is part three in a four-week Wednesday night class series called God's Purpose for Sex and Marriage. The content in this lesson is intended for mature audiences. Parental discretion is advised. You know, the first thing that I want to say is I just, I, I've, I see, have seen the same faces every week. We've lost a few, but for the most part, we've retained a pretty good core group of people. And I really appreciate everyone that has stuck with us on this topic. And, um, and I hope that the information is helpful for you in framing this idea of sex. And, and this week, we're going to continue uh, to talk about just building towards where we are currently today, okay? Um, and I really want you to understand how we are where we are in our views of sex and to kind of pull from this material even your own perspective of sex and sexuality and how that has impacted you, okay? Um, and a lot of this stuff that we'll talk about tonight uh, some of it is kind of depressing and, and a little bit heavy. So um, next week, we're going to talk about, we're finally going to get there to talk about what is it that God wants us to, to see sex as within our marriage? Like, what is the culmination of this discussion that we're having? Um, but to get there, we have to talk about how things are currently today. And, and, in some ways, you know, the, the messages that the world offers are pretty bleak, okay? So, that being said, thanks for hanging with me, and um, I think some of the information tonight will be pretty interesting to you. I do have a PowerPoint. It's just like five pictures, um, and they're not graphic pictures, uh, but... I don't have an HDMI converter, so we're going to have to just use our imagination. Russ is bringing his. Russ is? Yeah, that's what Sean just said. Oh, great. Did he talk to you? Did I miss something? He texted you. That's what happened. Okay, I got you. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> so, I was... Uh, What's the word? I was admonished by someone to that. I was, I was, uh, somebody discussed with me the fact that I didn't address the Victorian period. Okay. And so in all fairness, I thought I need to probably address it, but it's, but, but briefly. Um, so the Victorian period would be kind of in its peak in the 19th century. So like the 1800s. Okay. And during this time, the Puritan influences and all of the, all of the different religious impacts that had happened in the Reformation and uh, breaking off from the establishment of the Catholic Church, but also maintaining this sex for procreation only mentality, the Victorian period was like very, when you think of strict ideas of sex, the Victorian period was almost like the peak of it, okay? And, uh, and here's our hero, Sean. Thank you, Sean. <clears throat> so, so some of their, some of their views on sex, they, they really took seriously the idea 
of sex for procreation only. So so much so to that they wanted to um, they promoted this idea that uh, women should not experience uh, any kind of sexual feelings at all. Okay, for so, do you see a pattern here? Women are always targeted. This is it's odd, isn't it? So women should not feel any sexual desire and should not want sexual gratification within marriage. Okay that to do so would be to show a lack of restraint for her, which, oddly, restraint comes up again. Did that turn off? Where is that remote? So, so you have, you have this... Uh, this very formal society. And, and the Victorian period is really uh, very much so a part of British culture, okay? So, there we go. Okay. Um, so, Victorian marriages were characteristically cold, very formal, intentionally, emotionally distant, so spouses were to remain distant from one another so as to not stir up this dormant desire. Um, women were taught that they should not possess sexual feelings, and they were encouraged, as one author was outlining uh, an a, appropriate Victorian woman's sexuality, that they were encouraged to have sex as infrequently as possible, and when it could not be avoided, she, this author even gave all kinds of ways to avoid sex, that they should feign illness, um, they should say that they were menstruating. That, I mean, it's like this long list of how to avoid your husband for sex. Okay? And this was like a, you know, a sort of a righteous woman, a way that she would handle her own sexuality. Okay? Um, so... Encouraged to have sex as infrequently as possible, and when it could not be avoided, to do so as grudgingly as possible, so that sex would not become one, so that that the marriage would not become like a continuous orgy, right? So it's like we're gonna, we're going to, basically just resist at all costs, so that we don't have any opportunity for it to just open up the doors for any and all things, okay? Um, sex was also to be done in the dark, the complete dark, as dark as possible. For the husband, so that if his wife was ugly, this is actually written material, if his wife was ugly, he could stand it, and for the, the woman, so that, what's that? <laughs> yeah. And for and for the for the wife that she would not give him in the dark where he cannot find her, right? That she would not give him any assistance to find her or to engage in sexual intercourse, that she would lay there grudgingly until he found his way. Okay? Sexual feelings in women were seen as being motivated purely by maternal instinct. 
the desire to become a mother, not for pleasure. If they were for pleasure, it was deviant behavior and there was something wrong with her. Okay? Now, this is where things really get interesting. I hope you're ready for this. Okay? They had a condition... And the cure for this condition was what they called hysterical paroxysm. Okay? The condition was hysteria. And hysteria was a catch-all medical diagnosis for several different things. If a woman were to have epilepsy, they would say she's suffering from hysteria. If she were to have... um, neurological problems. They would say she was suffering from hysteria. And the cure for hysteria was hysterical paroxysm. And I'm going to read you an excerpt from uh, one of the books. In 19th century Britain, the condition known as hysteria was not a source of embarrassment. Hysteria's symptoms included chronic anxiety, irritability, abdominal heaviness, and early medical explanations were inclined to blame some some or other fault in the uterus. Okay, so hysteria was caused by something occurring in the uterus. But in fact, according to this author... These women were often suffering from sexual frustration or other ailments such as epilepsy, diabetic shock, neural disorders, postpartum depression, bipolar disorder, and PTSD. By the mid-19th century, the problem had reached epidemic proportions said to afflict up to 75% of the female population. Yet because the very idea of female sexual arousal was proscribed in Victorian times, the condition was classed as non-sexual. It followed, therefore, that its cure would likewise be regarded as medical rather than sexual. What was the cure? No. They would do what they called a pelvic massage which essentially was the doctor performing digital penetration on the woman until she had an orgasm. And this was the cure for hysterical paroxysm. Now, they did not see this as a sexual act between the doctor and the woman. They saw it as a cure, that this was, this was not an orgasm that would have happened during intercourse. This was something else. Right? They were relieving her of whatever tension was built up as a result of her uterus. The only consistently effective remedy was a treatment that had been practiced by, by physicians for centuries, consisting of a pelvic massage performed manually until the patient reached a hysterical paroxysm. So when she had an orgasm, they, that's, they were calling it hysterical paroxysm after which she appeared miraculously restored. Imagine that. 
The pelvic massage was a highly lucrative staple in many medical practices in 19th century London, with repeat business all but guaranteed. (laughs) There is no evidence of any doctor taking pleasure from its provision. On the contrary, according to medical journals, most complained that it was tedious, time-consuming, and physically tiring. This is the doc- these are the doctors complaining of this. This being the Victorian age of invention, the solution was obvious. Devise a labor-saving device that would get the job done quicker. And thus, the vibrator came into mainstream popularity for medical practices. The, the, the vibrator was a machine that was used in doctors' practices. It was in surgery centers. So it, they were either going to take a woman back to have surgery or they were going to relieve her of her hysteria. Okay? It, in fact, the vibrator predates the iron, like the, the manual iron. <laughs> Seen as very embarrassing and almost taboo to talk about in our day and time, particularly in Christian circles, this was like a household product that was, particularly in the early 1900s, advertisements were printed in, you know, magazines for the home, right next to the refrigerators, okay? So this was not seen as something overly sexual. Now, this had an impact on American views of sex and sexuality, which was also repressive, but not as repressive, okay? Now, the Victorian period came to an end around the early 20th century, and One of the big influences in that was Freud. Freud was a big proponent of the involvement of repressed sexual feelings within the human body and in the psyche. And therefore, Freud's ideas, as they took off, people started to reject the Victorian ideals of sex. So, many people impacted by Freud would have begun to experience some sexual freedom. And the introduction of Freud's ideas as it became popular in early American, or in the early 20th century in America, took off and actually started to kick off the sexual revolution. The sexual revolution is seen as something that happened in the 1960s, but it actually began in the 20s, okay? And the 20s was around the time that Freud was popularized in America. And I'm going to come back to that. Now, in 1873, this would be around the time of the Victorian period, in America, we had the the Comstock Act. Has anybody heard of that before? Know what that is? Okay. 
That was uh, an act of suppression of trade in and circulation of obscene literature and articles of immoral use. So you could not distribute magazines of a pornographic nature. Obviously, they didn't have video back then, but you couldn't have photographs. Um, this is what prevented the, uh, the, the widespread use of pornography and selling of pornography in the United States in the early 1900s, okay? But it also was used as a way to silence educators on sex and sexuality and kept many people in the dark about reproduction, what caused reproduction. People were, you know, had all kinds of different types of views about how people got pregnant and what was happening to them and their bodies when they were having sex. And so some people would be afraid of it. Some people were just clueless. But this act was not only used to keep pornography out of the mainstream, it was also used to repress any kind of discussions about sex, okay? Now, I want to say something real quick as a caveat to that, because obviously, running behind the scenes, there's always, you know, a, I want to say group of people, but not necessarily a group of people. There's always, uh, there's always, sexual immorality and all kinds of things happening in the background of all of this, right? So, but it's very polarized. You either are in sort of this area or you're just kind of like trying to fumble your way through, like, you know, trying to have sex in a dark room, right? Trying to figure it out. Now, uh, the it, to violate the Comstock Act, uh, the punishment was up to five years of imprisonment with hard labor and or a fine of up to $2,000. Now, in 1873, I didn't have time to find out what that would translate into now, but it would have been a substantial amount of money to to incur that kind of fine, okay? Not something that anyone would would have wanted to do. So So I guess the point is these are pretty like stiff penalties, okay? And uh, many of these aspects were removed from legislation in 1971. In fact, 1967 is when um, pornography use, or pornography distribution was legalized. Okay, so I alluded to the fact that, oh, I meant to show you this. This is my picture of the Victorian era. One thing that's really interesting when you look uh, if you read material about, you know, what were some of the appealing things about um, women during this time, they would have really valued a very small waist. So they had the bustle that they would have. Y'all have seen the, um, not the bustle, what's it called? Corset. Corset. Y'all, y'all know, but have y'all seen where like they're like putting their foot up and tightening it as much as they can and women you always see portrayed as like they just are fainting. Well, the reason that they did that was because they couldn't breathe from from the corset. And uh, but they they valued um, women who were were not overweight but not super skinny either that had an hourglass figure. And 
could fit into something like that. Okay? All right, so the sexual revolution, as I mentioned earlier, um, scholars agree that the height of the sexual revolution happened in the 1960s. But like I said earlier, in it kind of got kicked off in the 1920s. So when people converted from Victorianism to Freudism um, in the 1920s, they stopped repressing their sexual feelings and their sexual nature. Um, just a, a second on Freud. Many of you have heard of him. I, I know that Freud has sort of this reputation of being like a, a really sick person and really messed up. In a lot of ways, he really was. Um, but he was, he was also, he kind of, he kicked off the field of psychology, okay? So he kicked off this idea that um, it's not, that there's a lot more going on than what we just experience, like, relationally or individually in the moment. There are things that are happening in our subconscious mind that are driving forces he said that those things were mostly sexual. Some sexual desires for mom or dad or brother or sister, um, repressed sexual feelings from childhood, those kind of things. But, but remember that Freud comes on the scene in the middle of the Victorian period, okay? So when he uses words like sexual repression, it, there's a, a reason for that. Because a lot of people were, were actually experiencing sexual repression. So he is pushing back against what society is propagating as the norm and what you should do. And he's like, wait a second, something is wrong with what we're doing. It's causing people problems. Now, I think he missed the mark when he said that everything comes from sexual repression, right? And that all of our drives are connected to sex. But I do think he was picking up on something in response to a repressive culture. And so he kind of helped society moved, move out of that. Um, so Freud was a doctor. He wasn't a psychologist. There weren't psychologists back then. He was a doctor. He was a medical doctor. And he was treating people who were having these ailments He's like, man, if I talk to them, that actually seems like it might work better than if I just try to give them medicine or diagnose them. So that's that's how it kicked off, and and I think we owe some, um, you know, owe some stuff to him, particularly me as a counselor, right? Even though I think his views were really messed up in some ways, um, but to have the wherewithal that like sometimes people are dealing with things that they need to talk through. It's not all just medical problems. Okay, And that would have been a really strange but kind of popular, you know, thing for people to catch on. Because, you know, at this time, we are in the middle of the modern movement. And the modern movement says we can figure everything out. And the way that we can figure it out is by reducing it down to its smallest part. And if we can understand it at that level then we can fix it. We can figure out where the, the broken part is, okay? The problem with, with uh, psychology is that, as you know, it's not that simple, okay? 
if I break my arm and I go to the doctor and they x-ray it, they can very definitively say, yes, it's broken. We can see where the bones are split. And they can say, this is what we need to do to fix it. We'll set it, we'll put a cast on it, and it should heal in six weeks. You can't locate and reduce down what's wrong in relationships that quickly. Okay, So the modern movement was trying to do that, which a lot of our modern medicine is owed to people who were pioneers in that in that field and saw things through that lens. But in terms of people and relationships, you can't necessarily do that. So that's what Freud, Freud isn't just fighting against um, sexual repression. He's, he's trying to say there are other things at play in people's relationships than just some default in their brain chemistry. Okay. Um, okay, so also around this time, man, I should have gotten a picture of Freud. Um, Margaret Sanger came on the scene. Does anybody know who Margaret Sanger is? She founded something. That's right. She's the founder of Planned Parenthood. Now, Margaret Sanger was not necessarily advocating for abortion back then, okay, which we know that's a lot of what Planned Parenthood does today. Margaret Sanger was promoting sexual education for women and contraception and using better methods to prevent pregnancy. She was actually distributing material to educate women and was convicted of a felony in 1914 of violating the Comstock Act. So she fled to Britain But many of her ideas and the things that she was promoting led to um, led to the legalization of and the acceptance of sexual education materials in our country. So she kind of she kind of stepped out and fought back against the system that was repressing information to get out to individuals and said, we got to tell people what's going on and we got to tell people what they can do to prevent from, you know, getting pregnant every time they have intercourse. Maybe not every time, but, you know, more than what they would desire, okay? So she helped to legalize contraception in the United States. Many of these things that we're talking about, we just kind of take for granted, right? Like, contraception had to be legalized? Okay. Uh... All right, so then she, uh, she is around until the 1960s promoting education. And then something major happens in the 40s. What's that? Big war. World War II happens. Okay? Now, what's interesting about World War II is that there, there, are, there are a lot of um, studies that are showing now just this sharp increase in premarital and extramarital intercourse that happened starting in the 1940s. So, like, we, we went from, uh, in the 40s, a 7.1% single motherhood rate in the United States per 1,000 
to 21.6% per 1,000 in the 60s. So in a 20-year period, the single motherhood rate increased three times. To what? Uh, that's really interesting. <coughs> that would make sense. The The other part of that is you had, um, you, we had the Great Depression, and then right after that, we have the biggest war the world's ever seen. And, um, you know, our, our guys over here go and they defeat the the worst enemy the world has ever seen and come back and there's some speculation that they desired to live in the moment you know that they they sort of shifted the thinking of like um you know planning and all of this stuff in a different way because you never knew what was going to happen so the psyche of american culture changed and that's just speculation. I mean, there's no way to know really exactly what what happened, but another thing that I've read about uh, the lost generation, 1900 to 1920, they were pretty much raising themselves as children, and they were reaching out to find boundaries. Mm. They were one of the first generations coming out of the Victorian era that were starting to push the boundaries. That's good. And their children were the GI generation. That's right. Yeah, that's good. With and the Great Depression equally had a a tremendous impact, you know, because parents were working, you know, 15 hour days. Sometimes if they did, if they worked at all, people were afraid they weren't going to eat. But anyways, on the tail end. So then you have the 1960s in the middle of the 1950s, late 40s, 1948 and 1952. You have a guy write two different books. His name is Alfred Kinsey. Has anybody ever heard of Alfred Kinsey? Yeah? Okay. Um, he wrote sexual, The Sexual Behavior in, in Males in 1948 and Sexual Behavior in Females in 1952. Um, he was a professor at Indiana University. He was a zoologist who was selected by Indiana University to run a research project on on human sexuality. And Alfred Kinsey was selected, according to Indiana University, because he was an objective scientist who had no axe to grind. Okay? They still maintain that today. His research in these books were considered groundbreaking, they were very well accepted within the academic community, and most people agreed that they were scientific fact. His research led to the establishment of modern sexual education and had a pretty big impact on society's view of sex and the acceptance of deviant sexual behaviors. Okay, so what were what was his research project? Well, um, there are movies about his work, which I don't recommend you watch because 
of the graphic content uh, that's involved with them. Um, I tried to watch the movie, but I had to turn it off because it was just too much. Um, But he is considered by many to be the chief pioneer in the research of of human sexuality uh, and sort of a hero in sex studies. Now, he created a questionnaire of about 350 questions that he called sex histories. These were really intimate questions, and they would ask things like, um, when, not if, but when have you participated in sadistic or violent sex acts? And describe what you did. Or when have you experimented with a same-sex partner, children, or animals? When, not if, but when have you, okay? He was uh, reported, and these, this, is all, this is all stuff that has come out of people who were part of his research projects. There's all kinds of material out there. Feel free to search the web. You'll find lots of stuff on both sides. There's a lot of people that like to defend him. But um, he was reported to have badgered and even bullied people for information. His research subjects included administrators at Indiana University, professors at Indiana University, and students. And somehow he acquired information on these people, which he later used as leverage to continue his research project. Um, he knew stuff about these folks that no one else knew. So um, he would do things like he forced his research assistants and his coworkers to appear in sexually explicit films. S- many of these were done at Indiana University on the campus, and some of them were done, done in the attic of his home. He also would force, by threatening to, um, to fire staff members, he would force their spouses to come to his home or his office and participate on video in sexual activities. All in the name of research. The Lancet, Bubba, what's the Lancet? British Medical Journal. How how respected is it? Yeah, so it's like one of the most respected medical journals that exists and was back then as well. The Lancet warned that he had, in quotes, questioned an unrepresentative portion of prison inmates and sex offenders in a survey of normal sexual behaviors. What they're saying is that his research is based on the administrators, professors, and students at Indiana University, and the other, quote-unquote, objective people that he is interviewing are inmates, prisoners, and sex offenders. That's where his research is coming from. His statistician... 
who produced the statistics for the research project was not even trained in statistics. Many of the data that he put forth in the Kinsey reports is questioned about if it's even a reality. He used information from known sex offenders for information on pre-adolescent sexual behaviors. So he would interview sex offenders about sexual qualities of children. Like, when could they get an erection? Did they orgasm? All kinds of horrendous things that he would collect as data for his research project. Okay? He had two very specific people that we know today who they are, um, who were primarily the, the folks that he got his information from. One he referred to as Mr. X, who was actually, his, his real name is Rex King. He was a serial child rapist and raped over 800 children. The other person was a notorious Nazi pedophile, Dr. Fritz von Bolasek who was known for abusing children during um, the Jewish Holocaust. According to, to Alfred Kinsey and his, particularly the people that stuck with him, he had a team of people that were really close and they were all involved in sexual activity with one another. Um, what we call molestation, they would say is sexual conduct that's similar to what happens in the animal kingdom. That it is frequent that you will see an adult animal having sexual intercourse with a pre-adolescent adolescent, um, animal. So according to them, because you can witness that behavior in the animal kingdom, then it should be appropriate and accepted behavior among humanity. And um, they have been proponents of that since, since that time. In fact, they wrote... Um, they established later on... Uh, an organization they call Psychicus, which is um, the Sexuality Information Education Council of the U.S. And one of the articles that they published in 1980 was called "Attacking the Last Taboo," which was all about how um, pedophilia is a taboo in American society, but it should not be. Okay, so Kinsey's biographers discovered through some of the, his personal correspondence that they found that he was a homosexual with particular interest in young boys himself. He kept his secret life hidden from the public, and he was, in sec- he was sexually involved with his male and female re- research assistants. Uh, consequently, his wife was as well. And um, when one of his closest friends died, Ralph Voris, who was part of his research team, uh, Kinsey and his wife drove to Voris's home and uh, basically raided his office and collected any material that someone could have found that would have been condemning for Kinsey. 
Um, he helped to establish what is known as the Model Penal Code. And it's now accepted as the standard by many judges and lawyers. It was also accepted by the Supreme Court as a standard. Um, this was essentially drafted by Kinsey. It was based on Kinseyan beliefs, and it's based on the premise that um, during, the, during this time period in 1955 when it was accepted into the legal system, there, were, there was a lot of societal pressure to tighten punishment on sexual crimes. But Kinsey advocated on the other side, based on his research of pedophiles and sex offenders, and well, same thing, but sex offenders and criminals, said, we don't need to clean up society. He said, if we do a total cleanup, this is a quote, if we do a total cleanup of sex offenders and that is demanded in our society, it is a proposal to put 95% of the male population in jail. So based on his research, he speculated that 95% of the male population would have had some type of experience with children or with other types of deviant sexual behaviors. So what he's saying is, you guys are calling something illegal that's a normal part of our society. And he convinced people of, of at least to a certain degree, not completely, um, of some of those ideas. So based on Kinsey's misleading data, which was acquired from inmates and offenders, his conclusions that sex offenders are not monsters, they are no- he concluded that they are normal individuals and the only difference between them and everyone else is that they have been caught. So, you might ask yourself, how can one guy have such a huge impact? Well, I think he came on the scene at the right time. And he had, he was friends with the right people. One of his friends was uh, Morris Ernst, who founded the ACLU and had many political ties up to the Supreme Court. Um, He was also very well supported among the Ivy League schools in the United States. So they all accepted his research as scientific fact, which is a big deal. When our Ivy League schools are promoting something, it has a tendency to be accepted in the mainstream as well. Because people automatically assume like these guys are, you know, they're the they're the most knowledgeable, right? They're the smartest people, okay? So um what has the impact been? Well, there are currently today shorter sentencing, there's shorter sentencing on child molestation. There's less jail time and less conviction rate. Um he also, uh, he also promoted that adultery would confirm rather than disrupt marriage. And because of that, fornication and adultery were legalized because he said it would have little to no impact if it was legalized. His research in the 60s uh, was 
funded by Playboy um, because he had lost his funding from the Rockefeller Foundation, who initially funded this project in the first place. Okay, So the Rockefeller Foundation pulled their funding because of his sketchy reporting on statistics. He couldn't prove how he had acquired any of his data and hid behind confidentiality. And yet, you know, the Rockefeller Foundation, even after hanging on for several several years, they were like, we can't support your research anymore. So who took it over? None other than Playboy. Because it promotes the ideals of, of Playboy, right? I mean, if you're Playboy, I guess that's a wise move. So then also therefore influence the legalization of pornography. So that's pretty heavy, isn't it? Did somebody say something? No? Okay. Um, yeah, that's really heavy. I, I think uh, it's a very dark part of American history. One that we don't really talk a lot about because you know, you got to be talking about sex really to be talking about Kinsey. And so he kind of opened the door among universities and within the scientific and academic communities to say, like, look, we've seen this totally wrong and there really isn't basically any sexual deviant behavior you're calling deviant behavior what is normal behavior. You guys are crazy, right? So we should just legalize everything and let people have sex with kids, animals, whatever they want. It's normal. In fact, Kinsey said, this is a quote from him, he said that it was more harmful to a child to have an overbearing parent than one who would engage in sex with them. I mean... Imagine that. that this, is the, this is the kind of stuff that's being promoted, and this guy is accepted as a, as a hero in the, in the, in the community of, of uh, academia. All right, so I could talk about the problems with that. I think they're sort of self-explanatory. I think you get it. Uh, another thing that really caused the sexual revolution to take off, anybody want to guess? Films. Huh? Films? Films? Uh, yeah. Somebody. Birth control, Birth control pill, that's right. In 1960, Innovid. Innovid? Innovid was introduced. In, in medicine and women could take a pill now and prevent pregnancy so it was introduced in 1960 by 1966 6 million women were using Innovid that's a pretty big increase in usage in 6 years now this is uh, this is considered to oh this is a picture of Kinsey by the way <coughs> he looks real happy you may not be able to tell what that is it's a burning bra uh, 
So really the pill is kind of a, uh, attributed to kicking off the feminist movement because women were allowed to have intercourse. They were able to participate differently in society. They didn't have to worry about you know, sexual freedom and, or repression. They could enjoy you know, burning their bras. You know, uh, I, I've, so I don't want to spend too much time on that, but that was another part of the sexual revolution. And then pornography, as you mentioned, had a big p- part in this. Today, pornography uh, is so rampant and so widespread. I don't want to spend a ton of time talking about it, but I need to, I need to just say a few things real quick. I think today... Pornography is one of the biggest epidemics that we're facing. Um, there are several kind of underlying themes with pornography. One is that it's sort of a rite of passage. And the other is the belief that everybody does it, which is increasingly becoming closer to the truth. 90% of boys are exposed to pornography prior to the age of 18 and 67% of girls. Most of this happens by the age of 12. Okay? So first exposure is typically happening around age 12, and that is getting younger every year. The majority of the early or first exposures happen because kids are researching unfamiliar terms on Google. So they hear somebody say an off-color word. And they go, instead of asking mom and dad, they type it in a Google search. And they get tons of images that show them whatever it is they're searching for. In pornography, studies have shown that only 10% of scenes today in the average video, only 10% don't have any aggressive sexual acts in them. The other 90% include slapping, choking, gagging, hair pulling, pinching, and biting. Or binding or, you know, some of the other things that happen. And those are considered aggressive. So 90% of, of if, if people are watching pornography, 90% of what they're seeing is sexually aggressive behavior. Pornography usage results in the same, catch this, in the same brain shrinkage as cocaine, heroin, or alcohol would cause. It alters the systems of the prefrontal cortex, which have to do with executive function and the ability to delay gratification. And it also impacts the reward and motivation center of the brain. Younger age of exposure positively correlates to the age of first sexual encounter in life. So the younger somebody is when they're exposed to pornography, the younger they are when they have their first sexual experience. But here's the biggest impact, and I'm going to leave you here. The biggest impact that I think pornography has is the fantasy world that it creates. And here's why I think that's so dangerous. Because 
the woman or the man in the world of pornography is perfect. Physically, they'll do whatever is wanted, perform whatever act. Sexually, they are the ideal partner. And there is no person that can live up to that expectation. It's not possible. When that is replayed over and over again, it reinforces an expectation that isn't even known, that that we don't even understand. And it is pervasive throughout every facet of life. Now, you might think that I'm overselling or overstating the, 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 the point here, but I promise you, I work with people all the time that pornography addiction has influenced every part of their life because their expectations are so far off of what reality is. And primarily, just related to sex, not only sex, but primarily with sex, It creates an expectation that erotic engagement with your partner is what sex is about. That if I'm not experiencing a great orgasm, if I'm not having multiple orgasms, if I'm not feeling in the mood and orgasming at all, then there's something wrong. If I have a struggle with engaging in sex, then there's something wrong with me. If my partner is not into it as much as I am, there's something wrong with them. The eroticism creates an expectation that I want to go to the bedroom and I want my feeling to be as amazing as it possibly can be. And that's really all I care about is getting to that place. And if you're not everything that I want you to be, then you're a disappointment to me. That is a recipe for devastating, devastating sex in a marriage. And it's not what God intended for us to experience. I'm going to leave it with you. Thank you. 